The striking thing about Bitch Planet is that we're already on it. Daniel Henderson's essay, Bitch Planet, Volume 1, by Kelly Sue DeConnick and Valentine DeLandro. How's it going, everyone? I'm the pop mythologist, and this is the end. As I've mentioned before on this podcast, I'm part of a subreddit community on Reddit called r slash collapse. As the name implies, it's a forum for discussing societal collapse. Typically, most discussions tend to revolve around what are generally thought of as being the biggest factors of societal collapse, such as climate change, resource scarcity, civil unrest, and things like that. Now, every once in a while, someone posts something that has an overtly feminist angle or viewpoint. For example, one time, one of the moderators of the subreddit themselves posted an article about the law passed in Texas known as SB8, which bans abortions after the six-week point of pregnancy. Doctors were quoted as saying that their worst fears about this law were coming true because there were cases where, for example, women were raped, but they didn't get a chance to get an abortion during the first six weeks because they didn't even realize that they were pregnant. In fact, many women who are pregnant don't realize that they're pregnant during the first six weeks because there often aren't any noticeable signs of it yet. And so women who become pregnant due to a rape will get put in this horrible situation and then get criminalized if they want to get an abortion through, say, unofficial channels. Despite what felt to me like an obvious condition of a state of breakdown for women, of their rights, of progress that they've made, especially poor women and women of color. There were some comments from people asking, what does this have to do with collapse? Now on this podcast, I like to venture into areas that aren't necessarily thought of as being obvious aspects of collapse by some people. But as I discussed in my very first episode, to really get a deeper understanding of the many ways that collapse occurs, we need to broaden our very notion of collapse. And I believe that my guest today does a very good job of helping people understand that from her angle of expertise. She is Dr. Shelley Clevenger, Professor of Criminology and Victim Studies at Sam Houston State University, and I'm proud to say, one of my very good friends. To the question of what does this have to do with collapse, I felt that she gave a perfect answer. Hope you enjoy. I am here with my good friend, Dr. Shelley Clevenger. Shelly, thanks so much for being here today. I've been really looking forward to this, as you know. Let's start by having you tell the audience uh, about who you are and your work. Yes, I'm very excited to be here. I'm Dr. Shelly Clevenger. I am the department chair for the first and only Department of Victim Studies in the nation at Sam Houston State University. Uh, we're located about an hour outside of Houston, Texas. I'm also a writer and researcher in the area of gender and victimization. Yeah, and in fact, and we're going to be talking about this a little bit later, but you have not just one, but two books. Well, one book has already come out and you've got another one coming out. Like, my goodness, you've been busy. We're going to definitely talk about those. But we're going to start by talking about a work of fiction, since that's part of the theme of this podcast is pop culture. But the work of fiction that you've chosen to share with us today is Bitch Planet, 
written by Kelly Sue DeConnick, who, of course, is this mega huge comic book writer. Uh, she's written tons of stuff, but is perhaps best known for her work on Captain Marvel. And then, of course, it's illustrated by Valentine DeLandro. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And it's published by Image Comics. And in preparation for this interview, I read uh, both volumes of the work, and I even read the spinoff series called Bitch Planet Triple Feature. Now, that's pretty much all I'm going to say about it, because I want to give you the uh, honor of telling us what the work is about. So Bitch Planet is the feminist comic that the world was waiting for, uh and that we finally got. And so it takes place in a near future, this sort of dystopian reality where women who are deemed non-compliant are sent to, it's called the Auxiliary Compliant Outpost, which is affectionately referred to as Bitch Planet. And so the question becomes, well, what is non-compliant or how does one become non-compliant? And so in this world, There are lots of different ways. Oftentimes, it's not adhering to the beauty standards of the fathers who are the white, heterosexual, patriarchal ruling class. Uh, So you have to adhere to beauty standards. You, If you are transgender, if you are queer, if you are fat, if you are too much of a rabble rouser and stating your mind, anything that goes against the fathers, you can be sent to bitch planet and bitch planet really kind of plays on the 1970s sort of prison movies it's reminiscent of orange is the new black but i mean i'm biased i think it does a better job um of really showing where we could go rather than the way orange is the new black has portrayed some of the women these women it really targets women of color, queer women within the non-compliance and bitch planet, and they are treated harshly within this system. And they also have to go into a fight called Megacon, which is kind of like a Hunger Games sort of battle uh, with these females who are incarcerated. And I don't want to give any spoilers necessarily, because if you have not read Bitch Planet, you should. But lots of different things happen within these pages of the comic to illustrate the non-compliance, but then also to really show you kind of where we could go ourselves societally if we don't change our ways. And you touched upon something that I really appreciated about Bitch Planet, which is the focus on women of color and queer and trans women because... Now, I personally do like The Handmaid's Tale, but I'm also sensitive to some of the criticisms about it from feminist women of color. And some of that came to light recently with the very, you know, thematically timely leak of the Roe versus Wade document, right, from the Supreme Court. And immediately on social media, there were some references to, understandably, The Handmaid's Tale. But then there was a bit of a pushback from women of color and queer and trans women saying, well, you know, The Handmaid's Tale kind of excludes our experience, right? It's very kind of like white feminist. And so Bitch Planet seems to me to really address that, and which is one of the things that I really appreciate about it. And something else that I really liked about the comic 
is that it, it includes essays. So there's the actual story. Let me clarify the compilation. The, the trade paperback includes essays by uh, various scholars and feminist writers. And there was one by Danielle Henderson, and she makes the very striking statement, which you also alluded to, which is, quote, the striking thing about Bitch Planet is that we're already on it, end quote. So could you talk about certain ways in which the fictional women, you know, living on Bitch Planet, like their forms of noncompliance is reflected by real life versions of, quote unquote, noncompliance in the real world? Sure. Uh, and I want to say first that what you said about <clears throat> women of color and their experiences is completely valid. Um, and comics for a long time have had color blindness where we've had characters that were not white, but they weren't necessarily featured and it wasn't necessarily their stories. They were adjacent or sidekicks to white characters. So I think Bitch Planet really showcases these women in a really beautiful way. But as to currently how we're in Bitch Planet, women, even today in 2022, have a very specific way that people think they need to behave or how they need to present themselves. And I do think we're getting better. I, I do want to say that. This isn't all doom and gloom, uh, my comments here. But that women still are very much scrutinized by how they look and also how they behave, and also do they have children? Do they fit these typical, you know, female molds? And we are currently seen as non-compliant if we don't go into those roles, and women are supposed to be nice, and women are supposed to be nurturing and caring, and women are supposed to care what other people think about them. And most people would assume that you're heterosexual, that's already an assumption. It's not an assumption that someone would be uh, in a queer relationship or might not be identifying as a woman. They're, all of those things are kind of wrapped up within Bitch Planet, but they're currently how a lot of women experience the world today. To also talk a little bit about in real life and what ways in which, let's say, a middle class heterosexual white woman would get judged as being non-compliant because they do get judged as well. In what ways does that, is that different from the ways that let's say, for example, uh, a working class woman of color, for instance, or women in the LGBTQ, excuse me, LGBTQ community might get judged as being non-compliant? Yeah. So I will say for the record, I am a, uh, I guess, middle class, uh, maybe, white woman. <laughs> so for the viewers or listeners, that's who I am. And I have a great privilege just by being white. I have that. I did not earn it. Just being white, I have more latitude to say things that I want to say. People will listen to them more readily. And I'm going to take my personal situation a step further. I have a PhD and I'm a boss of a department. So I have more latitude than someone who would be a working class woman of color just based on that, that privilege. And so when we think about being non-compliant, I can be more non-compliant uh, in my life and sort of be forgiven for it. Whereas someone else who did not have that privilege is not going to be given 
that latitude and particularly with police. I think about this quite a bit um, where I live. I live in Texas. And so there's a strong, there's a lot of police in Texas, you know, on the highways, um, highway patrol. And I think a lot about that because even being pulled over, if I was deemed non-compliant being pulled over, I would have a lot more latitude than someone who is of a different race who's being pulled over and being non-compliant. And that could be how I look. That could be my attitude towards the police. That could be, you know, I wouldn't have to be as friendly. I wouldn't have to be as accommodating. There are lots of different ways that our privilege, my privilege, I can say, insulates us. And we are given a lot more latitude to be able to do the things that we want to do and say the things that we want to do without any repercussions. That's really interesting because I feel like that gets symbolized and reflected in the comic book as well, Bitch Planet, in which among the quote-unquote inmates, we see there are some white women, but it's mostly women of color, queer, trans women. And so I feel like what you're saying is is also reflected in the comic there. And I wanted to kind of start now moving towards your work specifically, but staying on the comic for a bit, I mentioned there's a spinoff series called Bitch Planet, triple feature. And I read that just because I enjoyed the main comic by Kelly Sudeconic so much that I want to go deeper into the world. And the spinoff is interesting in the sense that we see the wider universe of Bitch Planet, if you will, right? So Bitch Planet, the comic, mostly takes place on that prison planet. The spinoff shows you aspects of like planet Earth and, you know, people who are living not in prison, but in just the actual dystopian fictional world. And there are, in one of the stories, there's a woman who gets harassed and victimized, but then she's the one who gets blamed for it. And you, Shelley, you personally work a lot with victims because your part of your work is your victimologist. And I was just wondering if you also see that kind of thing happen in your work where even though the victims are innocent and they're the ones to whom harm has been done, there are ways in which our culture and their environments make them feel like it was, you know, their fault. So, you know, a common example of that that we're all familiar with is, for example, if there's a rape victim, then you might have some people saying, oh, well, she shouldn't have been wearing that. What are some other forms of that that you see in your work with victims? Yeah, I see victim blaming all the time. And so the best example that I can give you that I actually tell to my classes a lot was I was interviewing victims and mothers of child, childhood sexual abuse. So this little girl had been sexually abused by her biological father for years. And they reported it, the mother and the daughter, they went to the police and they said, this has been going on. And in the interview process, one of the officers said to her, well, if, if your dad was abusing you, you know, why did you continue to go to his house? Because they had joint custody. And so here we have a child who's being physically and sexually abused by her biological father, who is forced to go to his house due to a custody agreement, is being asked why she went there. Um, I've also interviewed mothers whose children have been kidnapped, raped, and murdered who were blamed for their children being kidnapped, meaning there was a mother who 
the little girl would walk down the street, two houses down, and she was kidnapped. And her family, the community, people she worked with were like, why would you let her walk, you know, by herself? And she said, well, she's done it, you know, a hundred times before. It's two doors down. Um, Then everybody blamed her for her daughter being kidnapped. And so, I mean, those are just two examples, but I've seen it a lot. And it's usually with female victims as opposed to male victims, um, which I always find interesting. And I've done research with male victims um, as well. But I think when we think about the patriarchy, which I personally blame for everything, um, has it puts responsibility onto women to sort of take care of themselves or as mothers to take care of children. And if you in any way don't uh, adhere to that or thinking about bitch planet, you become non-compliant, everything goes back on you. It's not the person who did the kidnapping. It's not the father who perpetrated the abuse. It's, well, you as the woman or the female should have been able to prevent this. And there's no accountability towards like the systems and institutional Mm -hmm. factors that are probably the biggest cause of these things, which is just, it's just maddening. And there's actually a crazy sort of example of this that I learned about recently, which completely blew my mind. And I couldn't believe that I didn't know about it or that it's not taught or that everybody isn't talking about it. And since you're here, I thought it was the perfect opportunity to share this, you know, what I learned with the audience and maybe get some of your thoughts about it, which is it's almost unbelievable because it sounds like something that would come exactly out of like bitch planet or some other dystopian story. Right. So what it is, is that in the 1910s, all the way through to the 1950s and in some places, even the 1960s and 70s, the U.S. had a little program known as quote unquote, the American plan. And I mean, that even that name by itself, it, it sounds perfectly dystopian, the American plan. And it was a legally sanctioned program, government program in which only women, not men, like you were just saying, could be detained or arrested if they were suspected of having a sexually transmitted disease, an STD. And, that, and then they would be forced to undergo invasive and humiliating examinations, you know, to, to see if they really did or not. So they could be arrested for any reason. And then they would have to be forced to undergo these tests. And if they tested positive, I kid you not, like they would literally be put in prison without due process. Like I I can't even believe this is actual historical fact. And, And then while being incarcerated, they'd be subjected to again, experimental quote unquote treatments for various illnesses such as being injected with mercury, which is highly toxic. And then if they didn't show compliance or ladylike conduct while being subjected to all this, then they'd be be tortured through like solitary confinement or even beatings or sterilization. Now, I know that people listening to this right now probably think, no way, you're making this up. Look it up. The American plant. Google it. It's real. And I was just wondering if there's anything that you would like to comment on that in relation to, you know, Bitch Planet or your work in criminal justice and victimology or just anything at all, just like freely commenting on that. Sure. Once again, the patriarchy is to blame. Um, one of the things thinking about this and lots of there's lots of examples other than the just this one 
is that there's, from my perspective as a gender scholar, there's been a war against women uh, and women's bodies. And we want to tell women what they should or shouldn't do with their bodies. And thinking about that example, men were probably the more prominent spreaders of the STDs, <laughs> to be completely candid here. And it, you know, of course, they were not at all being subjected to that. And the, when we think about, you know, the Roe versus Wade and choice, and we think about birth control, and we think about all those things, it's very much female focused, um, as many, as many things are. And sometimes when I hear those things and, or people will tell me different examples and I'll say, well, of course, because society hates women. Uh, there's lots of examples of how women have been degraded over the course really of our American history. Um, and that's specifically true for women of color, uh, which have had horrible things done to them um, and that white women have been really complacent in which relates to Bitch Planet. Uh, if you think about Bitch Planet, for those of you who haven't read it yet, the white women have sort of the power. They're not that they don't suffer too, because they have, you know, their own sort of suffering, but they're the ones who are really complicit in a lot of the things that happen in Bitch Planet and to these women of color, which is actually really reflective of real life and what has happened, thinking about the example you gave and many other things over the decades. This is a good spot to ask you this one additional question, and then I want to transition to your book, which is this whole idea that I talk about a lot on this podcast, the idea of societal breakdown and collapse. I'm often on a subreddit on Reddit called r slash collapse. So it's a collapse subreddit. Mm -hmm. And every now and then people will post like gender related articles or postings. And you will always have some commenters say like, what does this have to do with collapse? And so from your perspective, as a victimologist and a criminologist who works a lot with gender issues, if someone were to ask, you know, how does any of this stuff you guys are talking about today on, you know, Bitch Planet and all these things, other things you're talking about, how does that relate to the idea of societal breakdown and collapse? If someone were to ask you that, how would you address that question? That's a great question. Um, and I would say when you think about Bitch Planet or if this happened here in our real life, some wasn't fiction, I mean, it's the breakdown of a system and it's a breakdown of hopefully we'll get there, but gender equality, we're not there yet, but striving to have women have rights, men have rights, giving rights to queer folks, non-binary folks, everyone having these rights within the system. Bitch Planet is a good example to show you what happens when white heterosexual men take over. And that is a collapse. It's a collapse of everything for everybody unless you're in that group. And, you know, there are real world kind of examples like this too. But, you know, thinking about this collapse that it is, it's the, it would be the end of the world if I was a woman of color who was non-compliant. I would no longer be able to exist in that system. I would not have any rights. I would be sent to Bitch Planet in a horrible prison system where I'm likely going to be beaten, raped, or murdered by guards and cease to exist. So when I think of collapse, I think of an end of a system. It doesn't have to be this large kind of apocalyptic 
although it can be, it's a breakdown of a system that we have. And Bitch Planet, I think, does an excellent job of showing how it would be for women, particularly women of color, if that system collapsed. I think you just explained it perfectly. That's something that I often try to say to folks is that collapse isn't necessarily like an apocalyptic scenario. It can be, <laughs> but it's a broad concept and it's often a process of the breakdown of rights, of access, of equality, you know, and it might not be the end of everyone's world, but you could have a situation in which it is definitely the end of some people's world, right? Mm -hmm. Such as the people who either literally or figuratively are imprisoned on Bitch Planet. So this is a good spot now to talk about your book. And I'll start with the one that came out recently. Yeah, please tell the audience about this book. Sure. So um, the book that just came out in March uh, of this year, 2022, is Gendering Criminology, and it is written by myself and Dr. Dr. Joriana Navarro, and it's printed by University of California Press, and it is exploring crime through gender, um, and that's actually a variety of different things. So victimization, people perpetrating offenses, and then also what it's like to work within the system, and we explore that through men, females, and then LGBTQ individuals. So we take gender past just the dichotomy of male and, and female. In this book, I can say it's the book I always wanted to write. And I'm going to give a shout out to my editor, Amara, who gave me free reign to do whatever I wanted <laughs> and let Jordana and I um, be very critical, uh, meaning we it's a very feminist leftist book. So not everybody's going to love it. Um, but for me, it is a real examination of all the things that are impacted by gender in a really honest way. Yeah. And uh, you say not everyone's going to love it, but I loved it. Certainly the <laughs> chapters that I read. And one of the things that really struck me is that you were talking about how every major theoretical construct or every major theoretical paradigm in the entire field of criminology has neglected viewing issues of crime and criminal justice through the lens of gender. Mm -hmm. So what would you say are some of the most like flagrant examples of that? Well, historically, criminology has been dominated by men. It's been researched by men and the folks who come up with the theories have been men and they've tested it out on men. Oftentimes with research and theory testing, they'll say it's like add women and stir. They like mix it up and say, oh, well, we'll try this on women. And women are different than men. Um, I feel like I shouldn't have to say that, but it's true. They're different. And so when we look at why women are victimized or why women end up incarcerated, it's often a very different reason. Um, and so there are some emerging theories within probably the last few decades that have tried to address these issues. But I still think in 2022, we're still really focused on male um, offending. But we are getting better. I don't like to be negative. Uh, I think we are getting better and people are starting to recognize this. But honestly, it wasn't until the 1970s that we even had an area of feminist criminology. And I know my students think the 1970s was a long time ago, but it's not that long ago. Um, so really, you know, I'm 
40, I'm going to age myself here, really within the last 50 years, we've only had feminist criminology and it hasn't been given the dedication that criminology had been given prior to that. I mean, for me, the 1970s, I see it as yesterday. It's nothing. <laughs> it's not a long time ago at all. And something else that I appreciate about like taking the title, right? Gendering criminology. You also clarify, you and your co-author clarify that the gender includes women, but it's not just women. It's the entire spectrum of gender identity, right? Not just mm-hmm. biological sex. So for example, in one passage, you describe how if state agents perceive that a woman who committed the crime deviates, again, we're getting to the whole non-compliance idea, right? If they deviate from implicit gender norms, then the system treats them even more harshly compared to, I mean, definitely a man, but even like a woman who is more compliant. So what's an example you would give of uh, a woman who is being put through the criminal justice system who deviates from implicit gender norms and therefore is being treated more harshly. Yeah, there is research to support this. The fact that women who at their sentencing or at their trial or when they appear before um, the judge who are more traditional female, meaning like gender presenting. So you, uh, a woman who would maybe wear like a nice dress, who would have makeup on, who would look like what people think, you know, a a, a female would look like, and who are nice, who seem warm, um, who, you know, are polite, not loud, not, you know, doing anything sort of out of that stereotypical what they think a woman should be. But that, I should say, that stereotypical female behavior is often very much adhered to whiteness and white women. That's how white women are expected to behave, which people often will sort of brush to everyone. Um, There's also been research that looked at beauty bias uh, within defendants, meaning that if a woman was overweight or she, you know, was deemed not attractive by the, once again, those crazy patriarchal standards, she often is not given such a lenient sentence. And so there's something called the evil woman hypothesis, which states, you know, if a woman is acting, behaving, appearing out of the gender norm, she's often sentenced more harshly because of all of those things, thinking about Mitch Planet, being non-compliant. She doesn't fit this cookie cutter of what we think women should be. So that makes me think of something that I want to ask you about. And um, we don't have to go into it if if you don't want to for any reason. And I also want to be careful because I haven't really been following this story in the news. And therefore, I am Mm. pretty ignorant of it. And I'm referring to the whole, you know, Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard case. And again, I want to start with a disclaimer that I know very little about this. So I'm going to be very cautious here. But... With regards to that evil woman theory you just described, Mm. based purely on like news headlines I've seen and the chatter on social media, you know, you could say that in some ways, the actor Amber Heard fits certain implicit standards, right? She's a white woman. She's not, I mean, she's bisexual, but she's beautiful. She's slender. She fits a lot of those kind of implicit standards. In some ways, she seems not to. 
and we don't, you don't have to address that part. This just that's just something that came to mind as you were describing that evil woman idea. But please feel free here to comment on any aspect of that case that you would like to in any way. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So with Amber, a lot of people looking at comments on the internet, right, hate her. They hate her. The hashtag justice for Johnny is going around, all of those things. And so for me, I mean, obviously I'm on the outside. I don't know Amber or Johnny personally, but looking at the evidence, and I did follow the case really closely, looking at the evidence, it appears that he would have perpetrated something against her. Not to say that she's totally innocent, right? You can look at the the evidence from both sides. But I honestly was shocked by how much hate there was for her on the internet. And I should have known better, I guess, um, because women who oftentimes try to speak up against beloved men are often villainized in a lot of different ways. And so, like I said, not knowing what happened between the two of them, but looking at the evidence, it appears that there was abuse. Maybe it was double-sided abuse, but I was just shocked that no one was as upset with Johnny Depp as they seem to be with Amber. Um, And every day I would see people post horrible things about her and not just, you know, oh, she's lying. Oh, you know, poor Johnny, but like she should be murdered. She should be in prison. She, you know, someone should shut that bitch up, like horrible things about this person and whether you think she's lying or not, she doesn't deserve to be murdered. And so we don't see that with men and no one was saying that about Johnny. So I think that gender and fame, even though she is famous, he's more famous, really played into that. I think you touched on a lot of very good points simultaneously. So obviously, ultimately, nobody really knows all the things that happened because none of us were there. But it could be simultaneously true that she could have done some highly problematic things and still not deserve the kind of portrayals or comments yeah. being made against her. So let's say, let's go ahead and say she lied about some stuff. Again, I don't know anything. I'm just, <laughs> but I heard people talking about she's lying, she's lying. So yeah. I'm going to say, okay, mm-hmm. let's say she's lying. She still does not deserve things like she should be like the kind of things you were saying, she should be killed or X, Y, Z, like horrible comments, which illustrate a separate problem apart from whatever issues these two people had, which is the unfair treatment and portrayal in the media and in the public at large of men and women. So yeah, no, thank you for addressing that. I think it's obviously kind of a very timely case to talk about in relation to what you do in your work. And Speaking of your work, could you now tell us about the new book coming out and what that's about? Sure. So in the fall, uh, September of 2022, my co-author, Dr. Karen Holt, and I have a book called Understanding Sex Offenses that's coming out. And so this book talks about every type of sex offense that you can think of, whether um, we're talking about in-person, but also cyber sex offenses. That's an area of research of mine. And one of the things that we did that I think is going to be a little controversial or maybe is a little controversial for folks is that we used what's called person-first language. 
meaning we don't say sex offender. We say person accused of, person convicted of, which I'm a victimologist to, you know, remind everybody, and I care about the victim first and foremost. But a lot of folks who commit sex offenses have also been victimized and often have really extensive trauma histories. So we made that decision to be sensitive to folks who, yes, may have committed these offenses. And it's not to discount the atrocities that they've done or the victims, but to acknowledge that they themselves may be a victim. Um, Is there because I remember when I was reading gender and criminology and bitch planet at the same time it was like a perfect pairing right of a nonfiction and a fiction work i feel like these are oh my god these go together so well are there some connections with the new book as well with your old book or with bitch planet yeah i would say you know with thinking about sex offenses people who commit sex offenses oftentimes are ostracized or outcast in a way that they cannot come back from. Uh, And so that's one of the things we talk about in the book is, so when we have folks who commit these sex offenses and they go to prison or they receive treatment or rehab, but then they try to come back to society, individuals who are convicted of sex offenses often have the hardest time reintegrating. And so, you know, they are always noncompliant. They never get to come come back from anything. And so it's it's not always what you think either. The best example I can give is I had a student a long time ago when I first started teaching who was on spring break and she was in Florida and she had been drinking, you know, spring break, woohoo, everybody has a great time. Uh, and so she flashed her breasts at a beach because it's spring break and she was drunk and she's young. So I'm going to put that in perspective. And there were children there at the beach. And so she was arrested and she was charged with public drunkenness and indecent exposure to a minor. And she was forced to register as a sex offender. And so I'm not saying that this is every case, right? We have people who are on the registry who are a danger. But there are also people like my student who is deemed, right, non-compliant. She can't come back from being deemed a sex offender. Uh, Or there are people who might end up on the registry who had the sort of Romeo and Juliet, you know, sort of relationship. Uh, And so they are very much separated from the, like, most systems, getting jobs where they can live, all of those sorts of things. So I do see some parallel Like I said, not that some are not warranted, but then you have some individuals um, who their lives kind of become destroyed because they've been othered as a sex offender. I had no idea that you could be forced to be registered as a sex offender by being a normal college student (laughs) and getting drunk during spring break and flashing at a place where there's children. I mean... So, like, how is this going to follow her throughout her entire life? So, so let's say she goes on later, graduates, starts applying for jobs. Are they all? Are, are the recruiters at these companies all going to see somehow that she is a quote unquote sex offender? So she was a, she was only in the registry, I think, for five years. Um, so after that, I don't know that they would know 
But during that time, if you Googled her name, which is why I tell people to Google yourself all the time, you know, that's a good tip for just life to Google yourself to see what comes up. Um, it would have come up on Google on the that she was on the registry. And so, like I said, that's a, you know, I guess an extreme example. Um, but even when individuals have done what we would consider more heinous crimes and they're trying to come back and not reoffend or not re-perpetrate crimes, it often becomes very hard for them, um, which is why we see such high recidivism rates and people ending up back in prison. When does your new book, Understanding Sex Offenses, come out? Um, I think it's going to be out in September, so fall 2022. Um, and I'm really excited about it. Like I said, using the person-first language was something that we really felt strongly about. And we also do not use the term child pornography because children cannot consent to be in pornography. So we use the term child sexually abusive material, which is the more preferred term for people who research in that area. Um, because once again, it's sexualizing children or putting sort of blame on children that they're posing or being participating in this pornography. Yeah, that's an excellent point because the term pornography implies, hopefully, that all the actors in it were, you know, willingly yeah. in, in the film, whereas it's never the case, right, with abuse material. But so I think this is a good time to ask you about any see social media accounts or anything you would like to promote where people can find you on the internet, maybe your department or your faculty homepage. And also to just like, once again, remind people where they can find your books. Sure. Um, so I can be found through the Department of Victim Studies at Sam Houston State University uh, on our website. I'm also Dr. Clevenger on Twitter. And my book, Gendering Criminology, can be found on Amazon, which it's cool to be on Amazon. <laughs> um, and also through University of California Press website. And then Understanding Sex Offenses will be coming to Amazon uh, in September. And it's also being printed through Cognella. So you could find it on the Cognella website. Shelly Clevenger, I am so happy to have finally gotten you on the show. Thank you so much for making the time to be on the podcast today. And I hope I look forward to having you back sometime. Yeah, I was excited to be here. Thanks so much. Thank you again to my friend, Dr. Shelley Clevenger, for being on the show. To the listeners, I hope you enjoyed the interview. And I hope it helped you to broaden your perspective on what collapse means. Just because something doesn't feel like collapse for you or other people doesn't mean that it isn't very much a collapse for someone else. In fact, if you are the white patriarchal ruling class, heaven for you is a prison and a collapse for the rest of us. Unfortunately for you, the inmates, quote unquote, don't plan on sticking around. Closing us out today is some music that's reminiscent of the women in prison subgenre of 70s exploitation films that Bitch Planet is inspired by. Until next time, this is Bitch Planet. Bitch Planet.